Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're going to be discussing Chapter 19, God's Creative Action, You Have Free Will. This is an interesting topic to discuss and something that can help you on the path, especially if you already have a belief or understanding in God. And even if you don't, that's fine too. You're going to see through our discussion today that Gautama Buddha actually did, at various times in his teaching, discuss God and bring it up, but he has a unique, interesting approach to the way that he taught it. And I would like to bring those teachings to you today through our online session and our class so that you can learn about what did Gautama Buddha actually teach in terms of God because you're going to hear a lot of different things and it's important for you to understand what he actually taught based on the Pali Canon, which is the largest collection, most complete collection of Gautama Buddha's teachings. And what I'm going to be sharing with you actually comes from that. And then I will be sharing with you some teachings from my own practice as well to help you on this path to enlightenment and to understand God's creative action. So let's dive into today's talk of chapter 19, God's Creative Action, You Have Free Will, and just want to say thank you all for being here and choosing to learn and study the teachings of Gautama Buddha. The first thing I would like to share in terms of our talk today is defining what we mean by God. It's really important that if we are going to discuss God, that we kind of start with a common definition of what I'm meaning when I say God. Now, your current description or definition of how you see God may be different than this, and that's okay because of impermanence. Not everyone's going to look at God in the same way, and that's completely fine. My talk today isn't about convincing you of God's existence or not convincing you. I'm not here to either prove or disprove God's existence at this point. But in order to talk about God, it's important that we come with a common understanding or common definition of what we're meaning when I describe God or use the word God. So the definition that I provide here is the same one that I provide in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. In chapter 19, at the very beginning, I define what is God. And the definition that I give is God as the creator of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being. 
Some people may refer to this entity or this energy or this being as God or Allah. Some people may refer to this entity as all-knowing or all-powerful, omniscient, and omnipotent. Omniscient essentially means all-knowing, and omnipotent means all-powerful. So various people may refer to God in different ways. You might hear people refer to God as energy or a spiritual force. Some people refer to God in a certain gender, either he or she. Some people refer to this entity or this being in a gender neutral way. I tend to refer to God in the masculine version. So you may hear me refer to God as he. And the reason why is because what I know about this supreme being, it seems very much like a strong masculine energy to me. But that's up to you to decide how you refer to this particular being or whether you even consider it to be a being at all. But in Gautama Buddha's teachings, he absolutely taught about God. And we're going to get into some of that today. So this is what I mean when I refer to God or I refer to He. What I'm referring to is God, Allah, all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient, or omnipotent, the creator of the universe or source of all moral authority, the supreme being. And just to remind you guys of the definition that I give for moral conduct, because we're referring to moral authority here, referring to virtuous behavior, holding and manifesting high principles for proper conduct. So I'm referring to God as the moral authority, the supreme being who kind of determined what is this moral conduct. Okay. As we talk about God, it's important that you understand the way that I refer to God is in a way that we all have free will. That this entity or this supreme being that I'm talking about isn't controlling us like robots. It's not dictating what we should or should not do. So we have complete free will, even though there's this entity or this supreme being of God that exists, that supreme being does not control us. We have complete ability to make free will choices for every single thing in our life. This supreme being hasn't laid out a course for us or a path for us and dictates whether we're on that path or not. This supreme being doesn't judge us at the end of our life to determine whether we're a good or bad person and send us to hell or send us to heaven. That's not what I'm referring to here as God. It's just this supreme being that has this all-knowing, all-powerful ability and completely gives us free will, okay? And it's important to understand that God does not grant nibbana or enlightenment. God isn't the one who decides you get nibbana and you don't because you followed this path. The God that I'm talking about doesn't sit in judgment of us and determine the things that we get in life or the things that are taken away from us. This God that I'm talking about isn't giving us rewards and punishments. That's not what I'm talking about here at all. Uh, the practitioner attains enlightenment through their own wholesome choices 
to learn and practice the teachings and train their mind. It's not God who sits in judgment and decides whether we should actually be able to attain this mental state or not. It's actually us. It's actually each individual practitioner decides for themselves, are they going to learn and practice these teachings or not? And if they do, as they're practicing the teachings, how are they practicing the teachings? And through those individual choices that we make in terms of things that we choose to do or not do, it's through those individual choices that our mind becomes liberated more and more and more through our choices, not through what God is doing or not doing. So I'm hoping that maybe that kind of encapsulates a definition of what I'm referring to in terms of God. But I would like to pause here and see if there's any questions that people may have about how I'm defining God before we actually move on, because that's really important. Hi, David. We have no questions at this time. Okay. So people are on board with how I'm describing God. Doesn't necessarily mean you agree with me or disagree with me, but I'm making sure that you understand how I define God because this is important as we move forward into more teachings. Because if we think that God's sitting in judgment of us or God's controlling us in some way or we don't have free will or God's granting us enlightenment, then everything else that we talk about is kind of going to not connect and make sense. So here we're talking about a supreme being who is the source of all moral authority in terms of moral conduct. We have complete free will and they have not laid out a path for us. We need to make active choices in a day-to-day -day basis, moment by moment of how we move forward in life. And God is not determining whether we should or shouldn't have attained Nibbana God is not granting us Nibbana. We are actually earning it and attaining it ourselves through our own wholesome decisions to learn and practice the teachings to actually train the mind. Okay? So that's where we are in terms of our definition of God. The next thing I would like to share with you are some points about Gautama Buddha's teachings with regards to what he has said and talked about and things that he hasn't said and hasn't talked about. First of all, it's important to understand that Gautama Buddha never denied the existence of God. Many places in the world, you will hear them say that there is no God in Buddhism, or Gautama Buddha denied the existence of God, or Gautama Buddha rejected the idea of God. This is absolutely not true. Gautama Buddha never denied the existence of God. His goal was not to either prove or disprove God's existence, which we're going to get into here in a second. So he never denied the existence of God. What he had going on during his lifetime is he had people, a large group of people, you know, pretty much everybody around him were worshiping gods. There were many people who were worshiping not just one god, but they were worshiping multiple gods when he actually started teaching. So the last thing that he was going to do is come in and deny the existence of God 
or reject God. Because if he did, all those people would have rejected him, right? If these people have grown up generation after generation after generation of worshiping multiple gods, believing in multiple gods, and here's this guy with a shaved head with a robe on who used to be a prince in the royal family and says, oh, by the way, I reject God. Well, we know the natural law of gamma, whatever you put out, you get back. They would have rejected him too. But that's not what he did. And I'm sure being a very wise, astute individual, he knew that. He knew that if he walked in and started to reject God and denied God or these multiple gods that people were worshiping at the time, he would have been rejected as well. So he never denied the existence of God. He never rejected God. He never said God doesn't exist. But instead, he talked with the people and helped them understand how God does or does not fit into the teachings that he was offering. Because his goal wasn't to either prove or disprove God's existence. His goal was to lead people to liberation, to liberate the mind from this craving, anger, and ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, this concept of a self, and this ego that we carry. His goal was to bring people guidance that could lead them to this enlightened mental state of nibbana or enlightenment, which is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And it's not based on God. This enlightened mental state is not God granting it or taking it away. It is based on our own individual actions and our own individual choices. So he didn't come in to reject God and tell people to stop doing what they were doing necessarily. He was helping them to see how their current understanding of these gods fit into his teachings. So if you ever are involved in a conversation where people say Gautama Buddha rejected God or denied God, this isn't true. And you're going to see some of the words that Gautama Buddha used in order to describe the teachings on God. As he was teaching, because his objective wasn't to either prove or disprove God's existence and lead people to enlightenment, the reason why is because he had no independently verifiable proof that God actually either existed or did not exist. He couldn't give a teaching and say, okay, here's a teaching for you. Now, if you follow that teaching, it will prove to you that God exists, right? Everything that the Buddha taught, it's not based on belief. It's based on truth. For example, the Four Noble Truths. Here is the truth about the origin of discontent mind, the cause of discontent mind, the elimination of a discontent mind, and the complete elimination of discontent mind. You can take that teaching, you can independently practice it, and you can prove that it's either true or false. And the same thing with the Eightfold Path. You can learn the Eightfold Path, you can practice that path, and you can see for yourself that it's working and helping you to improve your relationships, both personally and professionally. It's improving the condition of the mind. 
Same thing with the five precepts. You can learn these five precepts, you can practice them, and you can see that it improves the condition of the mind. Same thing with meditation. You can learn those teachings with the Buddha. You can practice that meditation, either breathing mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation, and you can see that it's working to train the mind. If Gautama Buddha had unobjectionable information that he could share that would either prove or disprove God's existence, he would have offered that. But he didn't offer any guidance that could prove God's existence. And he also didn't offer any guidance that would disprove God's existence. And this is why he never denied the existence of God, because he didn't have any evidence that would conclusively show people that God didn't exist. So what he did is he actually taught teachings where he didn't deny the existence of God. He didn't reject God because there were people that had lots of beliefs in various gods and he needed to bring those people in to be able to learn. And if he rejected all the gods that they were worshiping and believing in, then they would have rejected him, right? So that's not what he did. What Gautama Buddha did is he focused practitioner's mind on liberation, on nibbana, on enlightenment, moving the mind through training of the mind to improve the condition of the mind to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And in order to do that, it wasn't based on God's creative action because you have free will. God isn't dictating what happens and what doesn't happen. Now remember, during Gautama Buddha's lifetime, what was going on is the common people were going to priests and they were giving money to them and asked those priests to pray on their behalf. And what they believed is that this special class of people in this caste system, they were kind of the anointed ones, so to speak. And if you gave them money, they would pray to all these gods on your behalf, and then that somehow would make your life better, right? And this kind of bred corruption a little bit because the belief was that the common people couldn't pray to God or any of the gods on their own behalf. They needed the help of these Brahmin. So they paid the Brahmin money to pray on their behalf. But then they would go back to their farm or to their business or to whatever, and things didn't get better for them. Their life wasn't improving. They still had anger. They still had frustration. They still had guilt and shame and boredom and loneliness. So this whole system wasn't working. And Gautama Buddha knew that it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work because that's not how people liberate the mind from these discontent feelings. So rather than just come in and tell everybody you're all wrong, and I'm right, which is arrogance, pride, ego, which an enlightened being doesn't have, if he would have came in that way with arrogance, telling everyone they're wrong and he's right, and trying to push the gods out of the way, throwing their statues over and degrading them for praying or whatever people were doing and paying the Brahmin to pray, if Gautama Buddha would have approached it that way in a very aggressive, arrogant, egotistical way, well, what do you think would have happened with that person? They would have kicked that guy out to the curb. 
But that's not what Gautama Buddha did. That's not what an enlightened being does. An enlightened being knows how to be kind, polite, open, accepting, help people to gradually learn the teachings that moves them from this practice of paying these specialized priests for a service that didn't have effect for them, which didn't have benefit, he knew as an enlightened being how to gradually move these people's minds closer and closer to the teachings that they actually needed in order to liberate the mind. And some of the things that he needed to teach them are things like right view. If you remember from our talk on Wednesday, if you've heard that podcast or watched the YouTube video or if you were in class, then you understand what right view is, is the Four Noble Truths. That all unenlightened beings will experience discontentness of mind. We are the cause of our own discontent mind because we have this craving, this desire, this attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness for everything to be permanent. We are essentially causing the discontent mind ourselves. The third noble truth is we, we can eliminate this craving, desire, and attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, and that will eliminate this discontent feelings, this discontent mind. And the other part of right view is that the Eightfold Path will completely eliminate 100% of the discontent mind. So he needed to focus the people's minds that they have responsibility. They have complete control to attain this liberation, this enlightenment, this nibbana, that it's not based on paying money to priests, priests go pray for us, and then our life gets better. That doesn't work. But he had to slowly, gradually help them see right view. And by teaching them right view in a way that isn't based on belief, that people could actually see the truth for themselves, then they could very easily see that they have the ability 100% to improve the condition of the mind and the condition of their life. And in this way, he didn't have to deny God. He didn't have to reject God. He was able to just show them the truth and let them see it for themselves rather than talking negatively about beliefs or worship or things that they already were doing, he didn't have to degrade that. He didn't have to talk negatively about that. He didn't have to become hostile about that because an enlightened being wouldn't do that. All he needed to do was present the truth, help them to learn and practice that, and then they could see the truth for themselves because it wasn't based on belief. So through learning right view and helping people establish right view, it automatically took care of helping them to understand that, okay, if you want to maintain your belief in God, that's up to you, but you still have to do the work in order to liberate the mind. God's not going to do it for you, right? So that's essentially what right view is all about is taking responsibility for your own mind. The other thing that was really central as part of his teachings is the natural law of gamma this cause and effect, or action and result. This natural law of gamma is essentially the result of our decisions. By me deciding not to kill other beings, 
I become friendlier, more polite, more respectful, more loving, more caring, more compassionate being to everyone around me. And that benefits my life and it benefits my mind because it's easier to be loving, kind and compassionate than it is to be aggressive, hostile and kill things. By me choosing to not steal, then that is good for me because if I was to steal, it would cause bad things for me. By me choosing not to have sexual misconduct, then I'm having good, trustworthy, dependable relationships where I'm not causing harm to other people, having sex with multiple people at one time, having sex with children, having sex behind partners' backs. I don't have to creep around and be fearful because I'm doing everything in a wholesome way. Likewise, if I don't lie, then I don't have to keep track of the lies and make my mind busy trying to keep up with all the lies. And if I'm not ingesting substances that cause heedlessness, then my mind can be clear. My mind can be unpolluted with these substances and I can have awareness of mind and I can train the mind. So these are essentially the five precepts, but they directly relate to significantly reducing kama or unwholesome kama. And by doing these and practicing these, you will significantly improve your wholesome kama. But it's the entire Eightfold Path that goes from right view to right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. It's this entire path that is explaining the entire natural law of gamma to us so that through learning this entire path, it's exposing the natural law of gamma to us so we can now practice that and then make good, wholesome choices based on the wisdom of this path. And it's not God judging us, but it's us making good, wholesome choices based on this eightfold path, which is essentially got the natural law of gamma at its core. What this eightfold path and the five precepts and right view and all these other teachings that the Buddha shares, what it's doing is it's awakening the mind to this natural law of gamma. Just like the natural law of gravity, you didn't understand it when you were a child. All you understood is every time you stood up, you kept falling back down, or when you placed your toy in a certain place, it kept falling down. You learned over time about this natural law of gravity, and your mind awakened to learning how to make your muscles stronger, how to place objects at a certain place so they won't fall down. And now you're at a point where you can roam about the world because you're awakened to this natural law of gravity. Well, the natural law of gamma is the same way. You're affected by this natural law of gamma, whether you're aware of it or not. And in the unenlightened state, we're highly unaware of this natural law of gamma. And that's why we have so many complications in our life and so many challenges. So what the Buddha's path, the Eightfold Path, is doing is it's awakening the mind to this natural law of gamma so that then as we get the wisdom of that natural law, we can make good, wholesome choices to lead our life in a good direction. Just like we learned to place our toys at a certain point, that was wisdom that allowed us to function and interact with this natural law in a successful, peaceful way. 
the Eightfold Path is doing the same thing, that it's exposing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And by learning all of that, gaining the wisdom of that and practicing it, it's awakening us to the wisdom of the natural law of gamma so that then we can make good, wholesome choices to train the mind and walk this path with the Buddha. That's what the Buddha focused on, is essentially right view and the natural law of gamma, not based on God's creative action. All the things that happen in the world are not based on God's creative action. If I see a bird fly over my head, God didn't do that. If I trip and fall, God didn't do that. If I make decisions in my relationships and they don't go well, God didn't do that. It's not God's creative actions. It's my free will of making good, wholesome, wise choices that have led to certain results, cause and effect or action and results. Essentially, gamma is the result of the decisions that I've made. And this is very central to Gautama Buddha's teachings. So you can start to see that Gautama Buddha's teachings are not based on God. It doesn't mean you can't maintain your belief in God and you can't have an understanding of God because we're going to get to that in this talk because you can. You can actually maintain your understanding or your beliefs in God, but you need to make sure you understand God in the proper context. If you think that God is controlling everything about your life, then you have no free will and you can't make choices because God's already laid everything out for you. But that's not true. That's not true reality. You do have free will. You are able to make good choices. You are able to practice right view. You are able to understand the natural law of gamma. And by doing this, it's going to lead you on a path of liberation of the mind. Okay, so let's pause here and see if we have any questions before we go any further. We have a question from Bill on Zoom. Is this topic similar to the afterlife an undeclared teaching? And if not, how does the topic of God differ from what he shared or didn't share on the afterlife? We're going to get to that, Bill, in uh, probably about 10 or 15 minutes. So I'll answer that once we get to that. Okay. We have no more questions this time. Okay. So let's move on to the next part. The next part that I would like to share with you are Gautama Buddha's words. Okay. He talks about God in a couple of different places that I've seen in his teachings. This is just one that I've pulled out because I think it's a really important one. Some of the other teachings where he talks about God, I didn't bring those out for this particular talk because they're kind of a different slant than what it is that we're covering today. But this goes to show you, if anybody says that Gautama Buddha denied the existence of God or rejected God, you can see right here in his own words that he was actually talking about God. And there's other places in his teachings where he was talking about God as well. So here in his actual teachings, I think it's important that we read this and we understand it. If you haven't read this in chapter 19, I'm going to read it to you right now so that you can understand it. It's titled, All is Caused 
by God's creative action. This is what Gautama Buddha says. Then bhikkhus, I approach those aesthetics in Brahmin. Aesthetics are people who are roaming around, searching for enlightenment. Brahmin are those priests that we're talking about. I approach those aesthetics in Brahmin who hold such a doctrine in view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, this is discontentedness, right? This is how he defines dukkha or discontentedness. So what he's saying is, whatever this person experiences in terms of discontentedness, whatever feelings they arise in the mind, all that is caused by God's creative activity. So if I feel anger, it's caused by God. If I feel sad, it's caused by God. If I feel bored, it's caused by God. If I feel guilt or shame, it's caused by God. So he's approaching these aesthetics in Brahmin who believe or feel or their opinion is all of these discontent feelings are caused by God. And I said to them, so in the Buddha said to them, is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? When I ask them this, they affirm it, meaning they said, yes, confirm. All these discontent feelings that we have in the mind, it's caused by God. Then I say to them, in such a case, is it due to God's creative activity that you might destroy life? In other words, kill other beings, right? Is it due to God that you decide to kill others? Is it due to God that you take what is not given? In other words, steal. Is it up to God? Is that why you steal because of God? Do you indulge in sexual activity because of God? Do you speak falsehood? Do you lie because of God? Do you utter divisive speech because of God? Do you speak harshly because of God? Right? Do you indulge in idle chatter? Right? And that you might be full of longing. This is craving. That you have craving, desire, attachment. Have a mind of ill will. This is hatred. Right? This is anger. This is ill will. And hold wrong view. What he basically did here is he said he went through the five precepts and then he went through craving, anger, and ignorance or greed, hatred, and delusion or unknowing of true reality. Is he said all of this is because of God that you're choosing to do all of this? You're choosing to have craving, anger, and ignorance all because of God? Then he goes on and he says those who fall back on God's creative activity as the essential truth, have no desire to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. In other words, all of this killing, all of this stealing, all of this sexual activity, all these lies, harsh speech, idle chatter, all of this craving, anger, and ignorance is all because of God. So because he's doing it all, or God's doing it all, there's nothing I can do. That's essentially what the Buddha is confronting them with. 
and saying, is this really what you feel is true? And then he goes on this last paragraph. He says, since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded, meaning their mind is cluttered. They do not guard themselves. This is protecting your own contentedness. They do not guard themselves. They do not guard the mind. And even the personal designation aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them. In other words, he's saying, this person isn't even on the path to attain enlightenment. Because what an aesthetic is, is someone who's on the path to attain enlightenment and seeking liberation. And remember, during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, there were many different factions of people who claimed that they had attained enlightenment and that their teachings would lead people to enlightenment. But Gautama Buddha's teachings, we know, lead to enlightenment, and he knew it during his lifetime. So he's confronting these aesthetics and he's confronting these Brahmin and saying, if you're thinking that God is controlling you and you don't have free will, then you're not even on the path to enlightenment is what he's saying here, because you're not making decisions on what should be done and what shouldn't be done. It's God that's making all these decisions for you. So therefore, your mind is cluttered. You're not guarding your mind and you can't even really refer to yourself as an aesthetic. That's what he's saying here. So essentially what he's sharing is he's sharing, you have free will, buddy. <laughs> hey, aesthetics and Brahmin, if you really think that God is the one that's controlling you, then you're mistaken because you have free will. And that's what he's sharing in this passage here. So let me just read it one time through without kind of my teaching on what he's saying. All is caused by God's creative action. Then, bhikkhus, I approach those aesthetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine in view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by God's creative activity. And I said to them, Is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I say to them, In such a case, is it due to God's creative activity that you might destroy life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, utter divisive speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will, and hold wrong view. Those who fall back on God's creative activity as the essential truth have no desire to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded, they do not guard themselves, and even the personal designation aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them. Okay, 
He's basically saying we have free will. We are the ones who need to make the decisions of what to do and what not to do. And we need to make an effort in that respect. God is not controlling us. Okay? This is a very clear teaching and I think very profound to understand on this path to enlightenment. He's essentially, once again, putting the responsibility in the hands of the practitioner. He does this in the Four Noble Truths, and he also does this here, where he's completely putting the responsibility in the practitioner's hands and saying, you have the choice to either do what's good or do what's bad. You make wholesome decisions and you make unwholesome decisions. And I think that's a very uplifting, very motivating, very powerful teaching that you have the ability to make 100% decisions in your life. And it's not attached to this supreme being who some people might think controls us. But that's not true. It's not true reality. So let me pause here and see what questions that we might have. So we have a question from Deborah on Facebook. She asks, is this similar to the Ten Commandments with philosophy from the Buddha? This is not similar to the Ten Commandments. This is essentially the Buddha just completely disconnecting his teachings from God and saying that what he has to teach and what he's sharing is not dependent on God. While he acknowledges this supreme being, he actually doesn't talk about just one God, he talks about other gods as well, but in this particular teaching, he only talks about one God. What he's doing is he's just disconnecting his teachings from God and saying that you have complete free will to learn and practice these teachings, and it's only your personal choices that are going to lead you to enlightenment, to liberation, to nibbana. It's only your personal choices. It's not God's creative action that's going to do that. I have a question or two about free will and non-self. So in other places, I've sometimes heard non-self described as uncontrollable or things being uncontrollable. And firstly, I wonder if that isn't maybe a slight misinterpretation of what non-self means, but I'd appreciate your view there. But maybe you could also help by answering, how does free will, how is that compatible with the idea of non-self? Okay, so non-self and free will have no connection whatsoever. If somebody's talking about uncontrollable in relating to Gautama Buddha's teachings, to me, this is a big misunderstanding of Gautama Buddha's teachings because the whole aspect of his teachings are you are in control. That's what the Four Noble Truths are about. And that's what this is about. And that's what the Eightfold Path is about. That's what the Natural Law of Gamma is about. That's what the Five Precepts are about. All the other teachings are all about we have free will to make these good, wholesome choices in our life. And by making those good, wholesome choices, and not only the ones that I've mentioned already, but the good, wholesome choice to actually meditate and train the mind, and whether you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation, we are making good, wholesome, personal choices. We have control. Right now, if the mind is unenlightened and 
things are happening around you, you might think you don't have control over these things because maybe your mind is untrained. Where like, for example, if somebody came up to you and started attacking you and scratching you and you lost control and just went off and smacked them. In that situation, you haven't trained your mind enough to have control. You haven't done the training to ensure you have the control. So you might look at that situation and say, I didn't have control. But in reality, you do have the ability to gain control. You just haven't trained the mind enough to make sure you could control the mind. So in that situation, if you haul off and hit somebody, you just essentially didn't have the proper teachings yet and you haven't trained the mind well enough yet. But the more that you have the proper teachings and the more that you train your mind, you will gain control of the mind where you can control it 100%. And that's the beauty in the Buddhist teachings is it's all about training the mind so that you can control the mind. But non-self has nothing to do with free will and has nothing to do with not having control. Non-self is completely different than that. Right, okay. So so we certainly control the choices we make in the present moment. And if we train our mind, we can control that more and more. Exactly. We don't, control, we don't control the past. We don't control maybe even the future, for example. So is it fair to say we don't control necessarily what happens because everything's impermanent, but we can absolutely control our choices. And through that, we can actually influence the future. We can influence happens that's the key word max is influence by you making good wholesome choices now in the present moment you're influencing the future right so i can make good wholesome choices to say i go to school say i get educated i become a person in the community that is kind and polite and calm and respectful therefore people in the community respect me and then it's easier for me to get a job but I didn't know at this particular moment that I was absolutely going to get a job in the future. But I just know that by getting education, which is a personal choice that I make based on free will, by talking politely, kindly and respectful to people, which is completely based on my own free will, by not causing harm with my bodily actions, which is completely from my own free will, by making those choices now in the present moment, I have the ability that these things now influence that good, wholesome things will come to fruition in the future. But guaranteeing that one particular thing or another will absolutely happen, we can't do that because we don't know the future. But we know that if we're going to have a good future, we need to do things like what the Buddha talked about in the Eightfold Path, which is have right view have right intentions, which is harmlessness, non-ill will, have right speech. By having right speech in the present moment, it's going to be better influencing the future. By having right action and, you know, all the way through the whole Eightfold Path, by doing all of these things, then all possibilities are available for us in the future. So you're creating this experience around you where you're doing all these good, wholesome things so that in the present moment, you're making those free will choices to do wholesome things. So then more wholesome things are likely in the future for you based on the influence of you making good, wholesome decisions now. 
Thanks, David. I have a, another question, and this is about praying to God to ask for things. This is something that seems to happen uh, a lot, but is there ever a case for praying to God to ask for things? We're going to talk about that here in a couple of slides. Okay. Yep. I've got uh, okay. about five slides here because I knew this was going to be a, a meaty topic because most of us have grown up in some way or another with teachings about God. And a lot of them come from Jesus Christ's teachings. And the more you look at Jesus Christ's teachings with the understanding of Gautama Buddha's teachings, you'll see that there's so much overlap between them. But there's this one topic of God that is very different from Gautama Buddha's teachings to Jesus Christ's teachings. So that's why I prepared some material here to really make sure that everybody understands how they can either practice Gautama Buddha's teachings with a belief and understanding of God, which we're going to get into here in a bit, or I'm also going to talk to you about how you can practice these teachings with no belief or understanding in God, because that's possible too, because some people maybe have either grown up with teachings of God and have decided, no, I don't want that in my life anymore. Or maybe people grew up with no teachings about God whatsoever, and they might consider themselves an atheist. So what I'm going to expose to you here as we progress in this talk is how you can actually practice with a belief and understanding in God or without one, and how you can actually get to the same exact destination of liberation, of nibbana, of enlightenment, but for those of us who are going to maintain their understanding of God, you're going to need to kind of modify your understanding of God just a bit. And that's kind of what I'm leading you guys towards right now to help you understand how you can practice this with a understanding of God or without one. And prayer is part of that. Got it. Okay, we have no more questions at this time. Okay. The next piece is what Bill was asking a question about. This is Gautama Buddha's teachings that he said he was leaving as undeclared, okay? This is another part of the teachings that you need to understand in order to more fully practice Gautama Buddha's teachings to liberation, depending on what you've been taught in the past. Because remember, anything that's been shared with you in the past has conditioned your mind in a certain way. Belief has conditioned your mind to believe certain things and oftentimes certain beliefs are going to hold the mind back from liberation, from enlightenment, from this mental state of Nibbana. So what you need to do is you need to learn Gautama Buddha's teachings in order to liberate the mind. So there are certain things that you might have been taught that's conditioned your mind one way or another, but now that you learn Gautama Buddha's teachings, it's all about unconditioning the mind and letting those things go. So in certain traditions, you might have been taught certain things, and here, not only does Gautama Buddha often teach exactly what he's teaching, but in this particular teaching, he actually shares what he's not teaching. And this becomes very important about what he's not teaching right? Because he laid out certain path, he laid out certain teachings, but then he also says, I didn't teach these. These are undeclared, okay? And his undeclared teachings are, the world is eternal, meaning the world is going to last forever. He didn't teach that. 
It's an undeclared teaching of whether the world lasts forever. Now, you might think right away, well, he taught impermanence. Well, he did. He did teach impermanence, but he also didn't teach that the world is eternal. But he also follows it up and says, I didn't teach the world is not eternal, right? Because if he would have taught that the world is eternal, it would have conflicted with impermanence. And he didn't teach that the world is not eternal either, right? So it's important that you understand he didn't teach either side of that question. He also didn't teach whether the world is finite and he didn't teach whether the world is infinite, right? So he didn't teach either side of that question. He's wanting to make sure that it's very clear he didn't teach either side of that. And then he also didn't teach whether the soul is the same as the body. Because remember, a soul conflicts with the teaching of non-self. A soul is kind of an entity or something that moves from existence to existence. And what he's saying is, I didn't teach that the soul is the same as the body. And I also didn't teach that the soul is one thing and the body is another thing. He essentially left the teaching about a soul as undeclared. He never declared the teaching of a soul. So if you understand the teaching of non-self, you would understand that the teaching of a soul conflicts with that. The teaching of a soul also conflicts with impermanence, right? So if anybody's ever sharing with you about the soul in relationship to the Gautama Buddha's teachings, he actually didn't teach whether a soul exists or it doesn't exist. He didn't teach that. It was an undeclared teaching. And then he goes on further and he talks about himself. Here he's referencing the Tathagata. The Tathagata, he's referring to himself as Gautama Buddha. He was a fully enlightened Buddha, a perfectly fully enlightened Buddha, which is an Arahant, which is the highest stage of enlightenment, which you can actually attain as well if you continue on this path. So when he's referring to himself here, he's referring to an arahant, someone who's enlightened. So what he's saying here is, after death, the Tathagata exists. He didn't declare whether he exists or not. Once he dies, he didn't declare that he's still going to exist after that. He didn't declare that he doesn't exist. Some people will tell you that when you become enlightened and die, then everything's extinguished and you no longer exist. Some people will tell you that, but that's not what Gautama Buddha taught. He said, after death, the Tathagata does not exist. That's an undeclared teaching. He never taught that he doesn't exist after death. He also didn't teach after death, the Tathagata both exists and does not exist. And after death, the Tathagata neither exists or does not exist. This is essentially the Gautama Buddha's way of covering all options. He's basically covering all options by saying, I'm not declaring whether I exist or whether I don't exist. I'm not even going to tell you what happens to me after I die. Because in all actuality, from my point of view, he didn't know because he had never been enlightened before. 
This was the first time that he had attained enlightenment, full enlightenment, and he didn't know what was next. He had no way of knowing because he had never experienced it. The reason why he taught the four noble truths is because he experienced them and then he could teach it in a way that you could independently verify it. The reason why he taught the Eightfold Path is because he experienced it and then you could verify it. Same thing with the five precepts and the same thing with the five realms. The realm of hell, afflicted spirits, animal realm, human realm, and heavenly realm. He had experienced those realms through all his constant rebirths and he had kept being reborn over and over and over again and he, through his practice, observed those previous rebirths and all those various realms. So that's why he knew about the five realms. But in terms of becoming enlightened, this was his first time of ever attaining enlightenment. And he didn't know what was next. He knew that he was no longer going to be reborn, but... He didn't know what would potentially come next, and he had no way of teaching it to you in a way that you could independently confirm it for yourself. He only ever taught teachings that you could independently confirm for yourself. Well, right now in the unenlightened state, if he told you what was going to happen, even though he didn't know, if he told you, you have no way to confirm it until you die. And if you had attained enlightenment. You have no way to confirm it. So all of his teachings that he's giving you are things that you can confirm right now. And none of these things you can confirm right now. That's why he left them as undeclared. So you can't determine whether the world is eternal, whether it's not eternal, whether it's finite or infinite, whether the soul is the same as the body or the soul is one thing and the body is another. Whether the Tathagata or whether an enlightened being either exists, doesn't exist, both exist and doesn't exist, or neither exist or nor doesn't exist. You have no way of confirming any of these things right now, so he didn't teach it. Whether you attain enlightenment in this life or not is not dependent on the answer to these things. What may or may not happen to you in the future isn't dependent on whether you can make good, wholesome choices right now or not. So what you need to do in order to liberate the mind and remove some of the conditioning, if you've been taught that when you die, you're going to be judged and you're either going to go to one place or another place. If that's what you've been taught in terms of heaven and hell, and you only have one life, you need to remove that from your mind. Or if you have this belief that as long as you believe in a certain savior or a certain Lord or a certain God, and as long as you worship these people, you will go to a good place. That's still an attachment. That's still a longing. That's still a craving, a desire, an attachment, a longing with a strong eagerness for heaven. And you have to remove that. You have to get to the point where you don't know what's going to happen to you after this life. And honestly, you don't care. All you know is right now, this present moment, you're going to make good, wholesome decisions to learn and practice the teachings. And through learning and practicing those good, wholesome teachings, they're going to lead to good results. What happens in the future when I die? Who cares? 
It doesn't matter. And that's one of the higher fetters. Fetter number six and fetter number seven, which needs to be removed from the mind, is desire to exist in one of the form realms, which is animal or human, and you need to eliminate the desire to exist in one of the formless realms, which is hell, afflicted spirits, or heaven. So if you've got in your mind that you're going to die and go to heaven, your mind is still longing for existence. You still have craving, desire, attachment. You're not enlightened if you still are holding on to heaven and you want to be reborn into heaven or you want to exist in heaven. So you've got to eliminate that from the mind as part of these teachings. You have to get to the point where you don't even care what's going to happen next because you're just going to make good, wholesome decisions now. And this is one of the things that I have talked about in our previous talks where I said as you're meditating and as you're getting closer to non-self and you're getting to some of these higher stages of enlightenment, it can feel like you're literally walking off a cliff because you've been holding on to certain beliefs or certain things that you've held in your mind for a long time where you thought you had it all figured out. And through these teachings, you're stripping all that away in order to get to emptiness and get to the natural mind, the enlightened mind. And when you're stripping all that away and you're letting that go and you don't know what's next, it can feel like you're walking off of a cliff in your meditation. And this is why it's important to have a teacher to help you and guide you because when you get to that point, it can be a little bit scary. It can be a little bit fearful. And if all you do is send me a message and say, David, I'm pretty scared. It feels like I'm walking off of a cliff. And if what you get back from me is that's completely normal, keep going, you're on a good path, then that can be comforting and encouraging and motivating to you to keep going rather than pull back because you're too scared to walk off of that cliff. So in the mind, you're going to need to kind of walk off the cliff, so to speak. And you may or may not experience that in the same way as I did, but that's essentially what it felt like in stripping away all of this conditioning. It felt like I was literally walking off of a cliff. So I would like to pause here and see if you guys have any questions on what we talked about here. We have a question from Randall. If the teaching of non-self conflicts with the idea of a soul, what stopped the Buddha from denying the existence of a soul? Well, we can only speculate, okay? We can only speculate. <laughs> and I don't want to speculate because it might confuse people. So I don't want to speculate. I could share my views on that with you, but it's not going to help you get to enlightenment if I share my views on that. It's better to just stick with what the Buddha said and what he taught because his teachings will absolutely lead you to enlightenment. If you learn and practice his teachings, you will get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, either in this life or some future life. If you learn and practice these teachings, they will lead you exactly where he said they would. So rather than speculate and potentially create muddle-mindedness, as the Buddha would say, it's better to just stick with what the Buddha said, that he's not declaring it. And that's just the best way to keep it in the mind. And someday, should you attain enlightenment and you want to talk about it, that would be a good time to talk about it.
But prior to enlightenment, it doesn't make sense to talk about it because you need to let go of the concept of a soul. You need to let it go. In order to realize non-self, you have to let go of the conditioning that there is a soul or that there isn't a soul. You have to just let it go and just forget about it. And then someday should you attain enlightenment and you want to ask this question again, then we can talk. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we have a question from Bill. Did Gautama Buddha teach as if he had a belief in God, didn't have a belief, or did he teach it neutrally? He didn't ever allude to whether he had a belief in God or whether he didn't. He just talked about God in context of his teachings. And he referred to some of the gods that people believed in during that time. He would kind of reference them by name in some of his teachings. But in this particular teaching, he only refers to one god. But in his other teachings, he kind of references some of the various gods that people believed in during that time. But he never alluded to what his thoughts were of whether he understood of God's existence or he didn't. He never shared. Just a follow-up for me, I noticed that he didn't leave it as an undeclared teaching either. So he mm -hmm. didn't declare it as undeclared. Yes, I wonder that's if, you right. think, if, you, if you think that's um, important, perhaps. Well, I will share with you that the more awakened you become, you will know the answer to this question yourself of whether right. God exists or not. And that could be why he didn't declare it and he didn't undeclare it. Because as you awaken more and more, you will figure out the answer to this question of whether God either exists or doesn't exist. We have another question from Roxanne on YouTube. She asks, if everyone's interpretation of God differs, was there ever any statement or teaching from Buddha about how the world was created or how we were created? Yes, he does give a teaching on what he calls the beginnings. And I have that in our Facebook group that you can access. It's about 12 pages long. And he describes what is the beginnings of the world and what he taught in terms of a creation story. I can tell you that learning that isn't going to contribute to your enlightenment at all. It's not going to contribute to awakening the mind because how things actually started has no effect on right now learning and practicing because it's in the past. He even went as far as saying that the time of when the world was created is undiscoverable, right? There's people in the world that are trying to figure out when the world actually started. And we're kind of taking our best guess of like 4.5 billion years ago, but that keeps getting updated all the time. And what the Buddha said 2,500 years ago is that the beginning of the world is undiscoverable. And he didn't refer to it as the world. He referred to it as the beginning of the cycle of rebirth is undiscoverable. And essentially saying we shouldn't even try to discover it of when it actually happened because it has no bearing on right now whether we actually attain enlightenment or not because it's in the past. If you are interested in Gautama Buddha's creation story, it's in our Facebook group under units 
all the way at the bottom, it says knowledge on the beginnings. And you can read Gautama Buddha's creation story. But again, it's not going to contribute to whether your mind awakens or not. But if you're one of those people that just has a longing and a strong eagerness to know, one of the best ways to eliminate craving, desire, attachment is to fulfill it, right? So if you have a desire and you have this longing and this craving, this strong eagerness to know what Gautama Buddha said in terms of the beginning of how the world was created, go see that and that will extinguish your craving. And that's essentially what you need to do in order to get to enlightenment is extinguish all these cravings, desires, attachments, these longing with a strong eagerness. And I suspect that's one of the reasons why he might have given a creation story is just to kind of fulfill people's minds to extinguish that craving. Okay. One of the other things I would like to talk about here while we're on this particular slide is what I call the afterlife, if there even is one, right? Because we know if you are unenlightened or you are in one of the first three stages of enlightenment, we know that you're going to be reborn. So if you never get to even the first stage of enlightenment, you're going to be reborn down into one of the lower realms of animal or afflicted spirits or hell. If you get to the first or second stage of enlightenment, you're going to be reborn back into the human world. If you get the third stage of enlightenment, you're going to be reborn in the heavenly realm. But again, that's not desirable. That's not the end of the cycle of rebirth because you can fall back down. It's only when you get this last stage of enlightenment where you actually escape the cycle of rebirth. And that's what I call in the book the afterlife, okay? So Gautama Buddha absolutely taught what's going to happen to us if we don't learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment. He explained it very clearly without fear, without guilt, without shame. He just explained what was going to happen because it had happened to him multiple times. So he was able to explain what would happen if one did not attain enlightenment. But in terms of him attaining enlightenment, that was his first life of him attaining enlightenment. So what might happen after enlightenment, he never explained it. He left it as an undeclared teaching. So if we want to call that the afterlife is kind of what I'm, I've been calling it. But because he didn't say whether he exists or whether he doesn't exist, he didn't say um, what was actually going to happen because he hadn't experienced it and you can't figure it out for yourself in an independent way, even if he had taught it to you. So we don't know what's going to happen once you attain enlightenment and you die. We don't know what's going to happen. But I can tell you, if you attain enlightenment in this life, your life, your mind is going to be so peaceful, so calm, so serene and so content with so much joy that you're not going to care what's next because you know if there is something next, it's only going to be better than what you're experiencing right now. And if there isn't something next, then so what? Because you are experiencing enlightenment now and your life is wonderful, right? So if you attain enlightenment in this life, you have to get to the point where you don't care what's next. And if you get to that point, your mind is going to be so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, you literally are not going to care. But you have to not care 
in order to get to that point, right? Because one of the reasons why we have such a fear to die is because we're not sure what's going to happen to us next. We're not sure. Is there this supreme being that's judging me and I'm going to go to a bad place or I'm going to go to a good place? I don't know. And there could be some fear with dying. But you have to get over the fear of death. That was our chapter last week talking about fears. You have to get over that fear of death so that you can get the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And by getting over that fear and not being attached to knowing what's next, that's where the mind becomes peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you've practiced all these other teachings and the guidance has led you there. So I feel like this is also one of the reasons why Gautama Buddha never said what was next. Because if he told us what was next, then the mind might have longing for it. It might have a strong eagerness for it. It might have a, a desire, a craving, an attachment for getting to that. What if there is something next? We don't know. But if he would have told us, then he's kind of setting us up to fail. So the Buddha being the wise Buddha that he was, he just didn't tell us, even if he knew. I don't think he knew. He might have known. But if he did know, he didn't tell us. And I think it was for a reason, because we have to extinguish all craving. And if he had told us, then some people might be longing for that and a strong eagerness. And if you do, if you have a longing for that afterlife, you're not going to get to enlightenment you're still going to be reborn because you still have craving. Craving is the fuel that causes rebirth. So you have to extinguish the desire to even know what's next. Okay? All right, so we're going to move on to the next one. We have one more question. Okay. Dave, if, if that works. Yep. So, in fact, we have two more questions. Sure. So we have a question from Bill. Bill asks... If we are to not be attached to God and we are supposed to drop attachments, how does that reconcile with previous teachings about non-attachment? If thinking about God is causing discontentedness because of our background and confusion, shouldn't I drop that attachment? Yes, that's what I'm saying here. That's the teaching that I'm sharing with you is that any kind of longing with a strong eagerness for God or any kind of craving, desire, attachment, that longing with a strong eagerness to be with God in heaven, that's a longing, that's a craving, that's a desire, that's an attachment, which means you're not going to be able to attain enlightenment. If there is this attachment to God, you're not going to be able to attain enlightenment. So that's the whole crux of what I'm actually talking about here, and it's going to get even more clear as we go forward here. So we have to practice non-attachment to everything, not just our son and our wife and our car and our job and our income, our computer, our cell phone, our clothes, our own life, even God. We can't be attached. We can know that he exists if you feel that he exists or, or maybe you don't. Either way, it doesn't matter. But if we have that longing and that strong eagerness to exist with God, then there's going to be discontentedness, right? And this is why some people who feel that God is controlling activities on this earth, 
that when somebody dies, sometimes people blame God, right? Or if they get in a car accident, they will blame God. Or if they get COVID-19, they blame God, right? This is an attachment to God. The mind gets discontent because they think God is causing all of this stuff, right? But what I'm sharing here is we have free will. God is not controlling us at all. So we have to practice non-attachment with everything, including God. So you're 100% right, Bill. Okay, we have a question from San. She asks, can you explain more about how those who kill others will be affected? If we kill during this life, we're creating unwholesome karma, right? We're going to have to deal with that. It doesn't mean you can't get to enlightenment because if you have killed in the past, you can still get to enlightenment, right? You can still get to enlightenment in this life. But what you have to do is you have to be able to put it in the past, right? So if you've killed recently and you may have to go to jail, you may be running from the law or something like this, or if it was just that you've killed animals, then you might have to just get over the guilt and the shame associated with that because that's part of the unwholesome gamma. The action of killing is going to produce, if it's a human or perhaps if it's an animal, it's going to produce law enforcement and they're going to come and they're going to start doing things to put us away in jail or give us a fine or whatever it is. That's the unwholesome gamma. But with that, oftentimes what comes is guilt or shame. So even if we were, say, in a state-sponsored killing, say we went away in a war and our government supported us to kill somebody. So we might go out and kill people and have the approval of our government. But then when those people do that, this is why soldiers come back from war pretty broken and pretty beat down and PTSD is what we call it, right? Suicide. These people are affected. Even though the government supported the killing, it doesn't matter because the government can't supersede the natural law of gamma, right? That's why soldiers come back and end up committing suicide a lot of times or have guilt or shame or what we call PTSD, trauma associated with their time in war because it doesn't matter that the government supported the killing because it still goes against the natural law of gamma. So if somebody's gotten themselves away from the results of the killing in terms of they can't be killed themselves anymore, then what you're kind of left with is the guilt, the shame, and maybe the fear. And if somebody continues to kill, like for example, killing animals and stuff like this, this produces hostility and hatred in the mind. So even if you're killing a butterfly or killing a mouse or you're killing a snake or something like this, you need to eliminate and eradicate that from the mind so that you can then practice loving kindness and compassion, which is active goodwill for all beings and concern for others' misfortune. So this act of killing, not only can we go to jail, not only can we get guilt, shame, or fear, but by continuing to kill certain beings, then we're continuing to hold on to that hatred, that anger, that ill will, that hostility, and we're not practicing loving kindness 
towards all beings and we're not practicing compassion towards all beings. So this act of not killing, which is the first precept and part of right action, yes, it reduces the guilt, the shame, the fear, but it also, what it does is by moving the killing out of the mind, it allows you to bring in and cultivate this active goodwill, this loving kindness, and this compassion, which you can now share with all beings. And that translates, believe it or not, when you stop killing mice or even mosquitoes or flies or snakes, when you stop that killing, that translates into how you start treating other people as well. So by training the mind to not kill any beings, even through our food supply, by training the mind to that level of detail where you're not even maybe eating animals, not that you have to do it right now, but if you train your mind to that point, then you'll see that it translates into how you treat other human beings, which will have great benefits for you in your personal and professional life. Thanks, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay, great questions, class. Wonderful questions. Okay, so the next slide. This is what I would like to share with you in terms of what I suggest for you, okay? If you are going to decide or you have decided that God doesn't exist and you have no belief or no understanding in God whatsoever at this point, then okay, you've kind of set that whole question aside and that's completely fine. And you can learn and practice these teachings and liberate the mind without having any belief in God whatsoever. And that's completely fine. If you practice in that way, then you're already not attached to God. And none of this stuff will apply to you. Okay? Should you practice in that way, and you practice that God doesn't exist, and you have no belief, no understanding of God whatsoever, you will still be able to liberate your mind. Because God is not granting you nibbana or enlightenment. However, should you ever find out at some point in this life or some other life or after you die or whatever that God does exist and you've learned these good wholesome teachings and you've practiced these good wholesome teachings and you do find out someday that God does exist, well, God's going to be very pleased with you because God is as we talked about, the source of all moral authority, right? So by you practicing things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, all the way through and training the mind to the point where you're no longer causing harm to any beings, should you practice these teachings all your entire life and you die and find out that God does exist, having attained enlightenment, and you find out that God does exist someday, well, I can imagine, I'm not God, but I can imagine that God would be very pleased with you because you're now not causing any harm to any beings. So if you would like to practice in that way where you don't have a belief and don't under, have an understanding of God in terms of maybe you're an atheist or something along this line, that's completely fine and you will make progress on this path just like everyone else, okay? So that's the first thing that I would like to share. The second thing that I would like to share is if you've been brought up with an understanding of God in a belief in God and you have a understanding of God's existence and you feel that God exists or if at some point you decide that God exists 
Maybe not right now you feel like God doesn't exist. But at some point, if you ever choose to start understanding or believing in God's existence, then this is the feedback. This is the teachings that you need in order to maintain that relationship with God and this belief in God or this understanding in God while still practicing these teachings. Okay? We've covered some of these already. Okay? The first one is you have to practice right view, which means you understand that all of your choices are your choices to make. You're responsible for all the discontentness in the mind. Anything that happens to you, good or bad, is because of your decisions. That's right view, which also goes to the natural law of gamma, is anything good or bad that happens in your life is based on your decisions. So you can maintain this relationship with God, but you have to understand that God is not controlling you, okay? And that you can maintain this relationship and have this relationship, understanding and belief in God, but you are responsible for all your decisions. And Jesus Christ said exactly the same thing, pretty much. He said, you reap what you sow, right? You reap what you sow. He said it. And he also said that we need to perform good deeds, which is essentially right action, right? So Jesus essentially said the same thing. You reap what you sow is the natural law of gamma. That's how Jesus described it. Gautama Buddha went into a lot more detail with it, but Jesus Christ said the same thing. So here what I'm doing is showing you how to practice Gautama Buddha's teachings but also helping you to see that actually Jesus Christ said the same things. He just said it in a different way. The third thing that you have to understand is you need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness to be with God in heaven. Okay. We've all been taught, if you've grown up in a Christian background, that the desire the goal, the thing everybody wants is to be with God in heaven when they die, right? This is what we've been taught. But if you hold on to that, then it's still craving. It's still desire. It's still attachment. It's still this mental longing with a strong eagerness. I'm not saying you won't be in heaven with God or that you will be in heaven with God. But what I'm saying is you have to eliminate that longing and strong eagerness to be with God. Because if you still have that longing, that's craving, then there's going to be rebirth. And in order to eliminate all these 10 fetters and get to enlightenment, you have to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment to be with God in heaven. Okay? The fourth thing is you need to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, the longing with a strong eagerness to obtain things from God through prayer. What some of us might have been taught is that God is kind of like a genie in a bottle, that we need to pray and ask God for things. And by asking God for things, somehow, poof, they're going to come. Well, how many times has that worked for any of us, right? This is how you know this stuff isn't true, because if this was true, we would be able to sit here and pray right now for whatever we want, and then, boom it would happen, right? This is how you put the teachings in practice. 
Jesus Christ isn't a genie in a bottle and God isn't a genie in a bottle. So if you're going to pray, maintaining this relationship with God, then you need to do it in terms of what I would suggest, which is giving thanks. If you're asking for stuff, God, give me a new job. Give me a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend. Give me a new place to live. Give me more money. Give me better health. Please save my husband. My husband's in the hospital. Please do this. Please do that. This is treating God like a genie in a bottle, and it's coming from a place of craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. So if you're asking God for things in your prayer, there's still craving, desire, attachment, which means you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. You have to extinguish it. So I would suggest that if you decide to maintain a relationship with God through prayer, that you give thanks. And that's it. If you want to talk to him, if you want to talk to him like a father or a mother or however you want to talk to him, go for it. However, whatever type of relationship you would like to have with God is up to you if you're going to maintain this relationship. But whatever you do, don't ask for lots of things. Don't ask for anything because God doesn't do that. God's not a genie in a bottle. And if you do, then you're just having craving, desire, attachment, which means you're not going to get to enlightenment. The fifth thing that you need to consider based on our talk last week, and that's why this whole chapter comes after this, is you need to eliminate the fear of God. Some of us have been taught to fear God, to fear God, right? Some of us have been taught to fear God. Well, depending on what your thoughts are of God, if there's this all-loving, all-caring being somewhere that you believe in, do you really think that that being wants us to fear him or her, depending on how you look at God? No. No, we don't need to fear God. There's nothing that God's going to do to punish me or reward me. God doesn't do that, right? It's the natural law of gamma. That is the cause and effect or action and result. The result of good, wholesome decisions that I make, good, wholesome things will come to me. So there's no need to fear God. Okay? I can tell you from personal stories that I've had God take over my body, my mind, and my speech in the past. Okay? This has happened to me on several occasions. And you don't need to fear God, okay? You don't need to fear God. So we don't need to fear God in his existence or however you look at this entity. There's no need to fear, okay? We have to eliminate all fears. That's part of enlightenment, okay? Is eliminating all fear, including the fear of God. Because in some teachings, in some interpretations of teachings, we might have been taught and the mind might be conditioned to fear God. There's no need to fear God whatsoever, right? No need to fear God, okay? And then the very last one, which is what Bill was asking about, I just wanted to make it very, very clear, if it wasn't already clear enough, is there has to be complete elimination of craving, desire, attachment to God, okay? 
doesn't mean you can't have a relationship with God. You can't have a belief in God. You can't pray. Just like I have to eliminate my attachment, craving, desire for my son and my wife. I had to do that. But I can still have a relationship with them. In fact, I can have even a better relationship with my son and my wife because there is no craving, desire, and attachment. Everything is just so much more peaceful. And it's the same thing with God. If you eliminate your craving, desire, attachment to God, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, you will actually have even better relationship. Let's just go with the thought that God does exist, okay? Whether you believe in God or not, let's just go with the thought that God exists. And let's say that you are God, okay? Let's just say that just for the sake of this. And just put yourself in the mindset of God, like you are God sitting somewhere just listening to prayers. If you had 7.5 billion people just begging you for stuff all the time, asking you for things all the time, just always begging for more money, cars, clothes, boyfriends and girlfriends, that would get pretty annoying, don't you think, right? If you had a friend that called you up on the phone three or four times a day or even once a day, and every time they called you, they just kept asking for stuff. Hey, Bill, can you give me some more money? Hey, Bill, can you get me a new car? Hey, Bill, can you get me a new house? Hey, Bill, can you help me get a new girlfriend? Eventually, we wouldn't be friends anymore, right? If you had somebody that was doing this to you. Well, of course, if God exists, he's not going to turn his back on you. But can you imagine being that supreme being and having all these people all over the world just begging you for stuff all the time, like a genie in a bottle, that would probably be the most annoying thing God could ever have happen. So we need to eliminate this attachment thinking that God is either punishing or rewarding us, realizing that we have complete ability to make good, wholesome decisions. And through those good, wholesome decisions, we will experience good, wholesome results. That is how you can practice maintaining a belief or understanding or relationship with God while still liberating the mind. But if we still ask for all these things, if we fear God, if we want to be in heaven with God, if we think God's controlling us, if we think that we don't have free will, then we'll never liberate the mind because that's wrong view. That is what the Buddha was talking about with wrong view. That is still delusion, ignorance, or unknowing of true reality. So we need to move the mind to the point where we have right view, we accept responsibility for all the discontent feelings, and we realize that we can train the mind away from those discontent feelings, that we recognize that it's the natural law of gamma, cause and effect, action result, essentially the result of our decisions that are either leading to good wholesome things or unwholesome things in our life. We need to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment to be with God in heaven because that's still a craving, desire, and attachment to have rebirth. We need to eliminate this prayer of always wanting things and asking for things from God like a genie in a bottle and have an open relationship where perhaps you decide to give thanks. And we have to eliminate the fear. If there's any fear of God, you need to eliminate that because God's not punishing and rewarding you.
right? He's not raining down lightning bolts to kill you. That's not what God does if there's this all-loving, caring God. And essentially what all this boils down to is this very last point that I'm making that we need to eliminate all craving, desire, attachment, all mental longing with a strong eagerness to God. If we maintain that, then the mind's not going to get enlightened. We can still have a relationship or not with God and attain enlightenment if you practice in this way. Questions? We have a question from Iblob, and he asked this whilst you were discussing not asking God for favors. So he asks, what about miracles? So miracles exist. Miracles absolutely exist. This is one of the ways that I know, I know God exists. I understand God and I know he exists 100%. But I don't need you to know that. And there's only certain things that I could share with you at this point to help you understand that God does exist. But that's not my goal. My goal at this particular point in teaching is not to convince you that God either exists or doesn't exist. My goal is to help you liberate the mind and attain enlightenment. And I can help you do that without a belief in God or an understanding of God or with a belief in God and an understanding of God. I can help you either way to do that. But yes, miracles exist and miracles do happen and God is responsible for those miracles. As a follow-up, because I, I suppose in a way, you know, life is a miracle, existence is a miracle. What makes something a miracle? Everybody's going to define that differently. Um, I can tell you some of the miracles that happened in my life, uh, and there's been many. I can tell you that that's how I define a miracle, but it doesn't mean that everyone's going to define that as a miracle necessarily. And, okay. and we don't need to look for miracles in order to attain enlightenment. Miracles are not going to produce enlightenment. For me, what all of these miracles did is it convinced me of God's existence, okay? Because in terms of my upbringing, I was brought up without any requirement from my family to either believe or not believe in God. My family was like, you do whatever you like to do. So I explored lots of different churches. I was in and out of every kind of church. I was all around, you know, different Jewish people and Muslim people. I was around a lot of different traditions and explored all of those. And then as I started moving into the teachings of the Buddha, I was taught by Thai people that there is no such thing as God and God does not exist. And that's what I thought for a long time, even though growing up until I was maybe 27, 28, 29, I knew of God's existence and I felt like God existed and I, and I would pray and I was involved in those kind of things. But when I started getting into Buddhism, I was misled based on the misunderstanding of the people that were around me. Some Thai people taught me and they didn't do anything wrong because that's just what they were taught. But some Thai people taught me that God doesn't exist, that the Buddha taught that there's no such thing as God. Right? And this is what I started to believe for about 13 years or so. And then it wasn't until the last few years that as I started learning and practicing these teachings more and more, 
God made himself aware to me and made sure that I knew of his existence. And that's confirmation, many things that he did that confirmed for me that he absolutely exists. And I know that to be true. I know the truth on this topic 100%, but I don't have independently verifiable truth that I can give to you and say, okay, now that proves that God exists at this particular time. So rather than try to convince you that God either exists or doesn't exist, what I'm sharing with you is how you can practice these teachings in both scenarios of whether you think he doesn't exist or he does exist. And I think that's the best service that I can do for you because my goal isn't to convince you at this particular time that God actually exists. It's to really help you to liberate the mind. And I can, like I said, I can do that with no belief in God or with a belief in God. It's up to you how you decide to practice. Yeah, that's a really good take-home point there, that belief in God is not going to prevent you from training the mind and liberating the mind. It can, though, Max. It can, though. If somebody believes in God and they don't practice what I'm sharing here, it can inhibit them. But it's not the belief in God that is inhibiting them because you can believe in God and you can understand God. What's inhibiting them is that they're misunderstanding God, right? Based on impermanence, right? Because based on what Jesus taught 2,000 years ago about God and, and some of the teachings from even before Jesus are still around with some people, these conditioning and this impermanence of what people think is God People are misunderstanding what God is and what he isn't. So it's not the belief or the truth that God exists. That's not what's inhibiting them from attaining enlightenment. But it's because people think that God is controlling things, punishing and rewarding. It's because people have been taught to crave this existence with God after death. It's because people have been taught to pray and ask God for things as a genie in a bottle. It's because people have been taught to fear God. So people have been taught to be attached to God. And that's what I'm saying here is you can maintain this belief in God and this understanding of God, but you have to uncondition your mind on how you've been taught in the past in order to to get to this liberation. So a belief in God can actually inhibit you if you don't practice in this way that I'm sharing with you. If someone says, I'm not going to believe in God and I'm just going to practice as if God doesn't exist, that almost makes it easier for them because they don't have to deal with all these other things. But if you want to maintain your belief in God and your relationship with God, it's really not that hard to strip away some of this conditioning that you've been taught in the past if you follow this guidance that I'm sharing with you in this talk. Right. Thanks for clarifying. So Mm -hmm. so a belief in God, if done in the modern conventional way with fear of God, with attachment to God, these things can surely be obstacles. Absolutely. Okay. We have a question from Manal. She asks, Teacher David, would it be okay if you could describe one such miracle in your life? Oh, <laughs> let me, which one do I want to pick? <laughs> yeah. um, I'll tell you the most outlandish one so that you guys will maybe think I'm crazy, <laughs> but I'm not shy, so I can tell you. <laughs> one time I was in my room and 
I got kind of hit with this energy, this sensation that went from my feet all the way up to my head. It was like this trickling of sensation and oversensitivity and it went up to my head and it got really full and then it like kind of almost like it exploded and I was left in this feeling of bliss, complete and utter bliss. And I knew it was impermanent and it felt so good and it was so pleasurable and I knew it was impermanent so I didn't want to hold on to it but it was just complete utter bliss and I was laying on the bed and then because I didn't want to hold on to it after about 30 seconds or a minute even though I was still feeling that sensation with complete joy on my face, I decided to get up and I kind of became a little bit dizzy and I kind of walked downstairs and I had my computer with me and I had Facebook up and I opened the front doors to our house. We have double doors and I opened the doors to my house and I came and I sat down on the sofa and a yellow butterfly, a small little butterfly came into our house and it flew right up to my face and then it turned away and it left. And I got up and I started walking towards this butterfly. And when it got to outside the house and I was trying to look for it, it disappeared. And then I came to my computer and on my computer, it said, don't follow the butterfly. It was a post from Facebook. It said, don't follow the butterfly. And right away I was like, whoa. And then I went up to my wife because my wife was in her room and I wanted to like mention to her what happened. And as soon as I got up to my wife's room, she was naked getting into the shower and she's got a huge tattoo of a butterfly on her hip. And up to that point in my life, I was very much following my wife. I was following all the things that she was telling me to do. She was a pretty dominant force in my life and I was pretty attached to her up to that point. But this particular experience of feeling this gush of energy, this butterfly that came in, I tried to follow it. The Facebook said, don't follow the butterfly. And then I went to go see her and then boom, it hit me. Stop following the butterfly. Stop following your wife. You have to be your own man. You have to find your own way in this life. And that was one of the big miracles that happened to me. And at that particular time, I didn't know that that was God because at that particular time, my mind was still thinking that God didn't exist. So I was having trouble rationalizing how this event happened to me. But that was a big, significant miracle to me. One time when I was in America, I was teaching Buddhism. And I said to my students, because at that particular time when I was teaching, I was based on what the Thai people had shared with me, I hadn't done my own study. After I stopped following my wife, I started doing my own study. But at that particular time in 2011, I was teaching what Thai people had kind of shared with me about God. And I said to my students, I said, in these teachings of the Buddha, God doesn't exist. There is no God. And at that exact moment, there was an earthquake in Virginia, Northern Virginia. It was in August of 2011. And this was the first earthquake I'd ever been in. Okay. That was a second one. A third one, I was sitting at a temple one time and I didn't know what was going on around me, but I saw a picture, this picture of the Buddha that you see on the screen, this one that I, I always use right here, this picture was on a wall 
of the temple. And when I sat down and I looked at the picture of the Buddha, it was like the Buddha had two rays coming out of his eyes and went straight into my eyes and it like knocked me back in my chair. And it was just like, like beam me up, you know, it was like, and it went on for a good 30 seconds to a minute. And then, boom, you know, my, I came back to kind of reality for a second. And that was, that's one of the ways that I know that this picture is 100% Gautama Buddha from his lifetime because that was confirmed for me at that time. So those are like three miracles that I've experienced. And there's been others besides that. And it took all of these miracles to convince me that God exists because at that time I had been taught that God doesn't exist. And that was what I was walking around with, this feeling of God didn't exist. But those three miracles, along with countless others, is what it actually took for me to finally realize this supreme being exists for sure. And that's the understanding that I know. I know it to be true, but you don't need to know that in order to get to liberation. And uh, I can teach you how to attain liberation with a belief in God, an understanding of God, or without one. And these are just a few of the experiences that I've had that show me that God absolutely exists. I will never say anything otherwise ever again. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, David. Yeah. Manal says wonderful sharing. Thank you. And yeah, I think we're all just loving listening to you tell those stories. What's interesting about all three of those is not just the spectacular occurrence that happened, but also how it affected you in your direction yes absolutely and like this is effect. and this is what i was sharing with you is the more you learn and practice these teachings you may come to a conclusion as i did what is true reality on this topic you may discover for yourself whether god exists or not if you've never gotten evidence that you can see that god actually exists and you feel like god doesn't exist that's completely fine. I will still teach you. I still love you. I still am very interested in helping you liberate the mind. But someday, as you learn and practice these teachings and the mind awakens more and more, you may end up getting evidence for yourself of God's existence. And you may not. But your liberation is not dependent on God. And one of the things about God is he likes to work in these mysterious ways. He's not interested in giving independent proof of his existence because to a certain level, he's interested in people just believing. So he does these little miracles, or in these, this case, big miracles, and some other ones that I haven't shared yet. He does this because he's interested in you making good, wholesome decisions to walk towards the light. And the closer you get towards the light, he's then more able to show himself to you and you're more aware of it. If you're in the darkness and he starts doing miracles around you, you're just going to discount it, right? But as you get closer and closer to the light and you make better and better choices, he likes to selectively, independently on your own, make himself known 
and he does it in very unique ways. So as you awaken, as you get closer and closer to the light, you may experience certain miracles that happen around you that prove to you God's existence. And if you get that someday, that's fine. And if you never get that, then that's fine too. You can liberate the mind either way. And it's not based on God's existence because everything is in your control. You can make personal choices to get closer and closer to the light, to enlightenment, to Nibbana, to this liberation of the mind. Great. Okay. Thank you. We do have one more question uh, from Deborah Wright on Facebook. She asks, does it take a lifetime to become enlightened or can it be achieved within a few years? It can be achieved in a few years. Gautama Buddha did it in six years, essentially. But even if you attain it in this life, you know, you've really been working on it for multiple lives up to this point. But you can attain it in this life, especially if you're working with a teacher who really, truly understands enlightenment and has experienced it for themselves. They can be a very good guide to help you. Whereas if you're just doing this on your own, you have no chance of getting enlightened because only a Buddha, someone who able to awaken the mind on their own would be able to attain enlightenment on their own. A true Buddha, the last one currently known to the world existed 2,500 years ago. So everybody else needs teachers and guides to help them on the path. So you can absolutely attain it in this life, but you need to have dedication and commitment to learning and practicing. And having a teacher that really understands enlightenment, that can give it to you in a real deep level on many different aspects of life, they will be the best guides for you to be able to help you to attain this mental state. With confidence in the Buddha, with access to his teachings, with access to a teacher and a community, all you need at that point is your own dedication, your own commitment. Nobody can give that to you. You have to have it yourself, right? So I can be a teacher. I can guide you. I can give you the teachings. I can encourage you to have confidence in the Buddha and that his teachings absolutely work to attain enlightenment. I can help you with all of that, but you have to have this last one, the dedication and commitment. If you've got that and you learn and you practice, you can ask Max, you can ask John, you can ask some of these other students that have been studying with me for a while, if you apply dedication and commitment, your mind, the condition of your mind is only going to keep improving. But it's that last piece that's so important. If you have complacency or laziness, you have to eradicate that. You have to eradicate complacency 100%. If you have the dedication and commitment, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to progress closer and closer to enlightenment in this life and potentially attain it. Okay, we have no more questions. Okay, if that's the case, then I'm all finished with everything that I was planning to share with you. We're right at the two hour mark, so it actually works out perfect because we usually spend about two hours together each Sunday at nine o'clock and on Wednesday at nine o'clock, Thai time. We do this live stream through Facebook and YouTube, as well as having the virtual classroom where you guys can come in and you can learn and ask questions. And then, of course, it's going to be available and accessible that you guys can watch it back in the future. And then I 
take the audio from these and I edit them and make a podcast so you can listen to it as a podcast as well. Next week, we're going to be discussing our animal to human, right? This evolution of the mind, the evolving of the consciousness from the animal consciousness to the human consciousness. Because if you're in the human realm right now, then it means that you either attained one of the levels of enlightenment in a previous life and you were reborn back into the human world, which is somewhat rare, but it happens. Or what most likely happens is you've had countless animal existences. And because of these countless animal existences, we're born into this human realm as a human, in a human form, but our consciousness still functions very much like an animal. This is why we have anger and we have hostility and we don't want to share. We become selfish, right? This is from our animal existence. This is why we have longing, craving, desire. This is why we have hatred, anger, ill will. We fight. We fight like animals. This is why we have delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality because of our animal existences. And we've had so many of those that our mind has been conditioned very much like an animal. This is also the reason why we're so affectionate and have such a fascination with animals because of our previous animal existences. So what we're going to be doing in our talk next week is we're going to be talking about this evolution of the consciousness from these previous animal existences. Now that we're in the human realm, what does that mean for us? And how do we drop off these animal instincts that we have so that we can become more and more human? We're going to talk a lot about rebirth and the cycle of rebirth. So if you've had questions or interest in studying the cycle of rebirth and understanding this evolution from animal to human, we're going to be doing that next Sunday at nine o'clock Thai time. This Wednesday, we're going to be discussing breathing mindfulness meditation. And if there's any residual questions about God's creative action, you have free will. We can also discuss those on Wednesday. And depending on what's going on in our Facebook group and what questions are coming up, I may even have something else to add into our talk on Wednesday. But either way, if you would like to come back on Wednesday at nine or Sunday at nine, and if for some reason you can't make it, there's going to be the playback for YouTube and Facebook, as well as the podcast. But the more you learn and take in this information, it will start explaining to you and help you understand why there's all this craving, why there's all this desire, attachment, this longing, this strong eagerness, why there's all this hostility. Because sometimes understanding why, it helps you to kind of reflect on that and then be able to eliminate it. So that you can see, aha, I'm so hostile, I'm acting like an animal, right? We even say that sometimes. You're acting like an animal, right? Why do you think we say these things? Because they're connected to these teachings. And our consciousness says these things, but we're not aware of how they're connected to the teachings, right? You're acting like an animal. We say that when somebody's being angry or hostile. You're acting like an animal. Well, I'm going to explain to you why that is. 
So I want to thank you all for joining me for this talk about God's creative action. You have free will, chapter 19. If you haven't read the chapter, go ahead and read that this week. Ask any questions that you have in the Facebook group. And then remember, at the end of the week, there's a quiz that you can access in our Facebook group, or you can access it from the end of this chapter if you download the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. At the end of that chapter, there's a little quiz just to help you confirm that you've understood this chapter. And pretty much every chapter has a quiz at the end of the chapter. I want to wish you all the best success in your meditation. I want to wish you all the best success in learning and practicing these teachings. I want to encourage you to spend good quality time with your close relatives, your family, all the people around you, and treat others the same way, the same way that you have this love and care and kindness for those people that are around you and close to you. Treat others that way too strangers, cashiers, gas station attendants, janitors, waiters, waitresses. Just treat everyone with loving kindness, active goodwill for all beings. Treat everyone with compassion, concern for their misfortune. And by doing this, you will be sharing the brilliance, the light that you have in the mind. You will be sharing that with others through practicing joy, okay? So I'll see you guys on our next talk. Thank you so much for joining, and I appreciate it. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.